The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So tonight I'm going to begin a series of talks on energy, or sometimes effort. It's called effort. And it's part of a series of talks on the seven factors of awakening. <clears throat> Actually, next Wednesday I won't be in town. I'll be on retreat. And Gail Iverson will be giving the talk next Wednesday. But I'll be back the following Wednesday. So I want to review the seven factors that I've been talking about since September. And it will help us understand energy as a factor that supports insight, supports freedom, and ease in the mind. And superficially, we all know we want energy. <clears throat> Rarely do we think we have too much energy. But it's one of these things that we, we have to be careful what we wish for. We have to really understand, well, what do we mean by energy or the quality of effort? What is wholesome energy or effort look like in the mind? So this list of seven factors of mind, the Buddha called the seven factors of awakening. And there are three energizing factors and three tranquilizing factors. Many of you have heard this before. And mindfulness is the balancing factor. It sort of knows whether the energizing factors are underdeveloped or the tranquilizing factors are underdeveloped. <clears throat> and the three energizing factors, investigation, energy, and rapture. Sometimes raptured is called joyful interest. So energy. Well, if we think about mindfulness as uh, a moment when the mind drops its almost ceaseless proliferation, thinking one thought leading to another. If we have a moment of mindfulness, it means in that moment, <coughs> this particular talent of the mind to see things directly, it's aroused. And so we're not caught by the content of our thoughts. There still may be thoughts in the mind, but we're not caught by them. Instead, we're dropping in, hearing sounds, not confused by what our interpretation is of the sounds, but we're actually hearing the sound, or seeing the sight, or tasting the taste, or feeling the sensation not confused by our interpretation about what that sensation means. But we're actually noticing, you know, I have a little itch there, just noticing that as a sensation. So that's a moment of mindfulness. <clears throat> and a moment of mindfulness is a moment of dropping the delusion, and that I know sounds a little heavy, but dropping the delusion of our thoughts and having a direct experience. And then investigation is when we follow that up with an intention of continuity. So investigation is really the intention to have one moment of mindfulness followed by another moment of mindfulness followed by another moment of mindfulness. That's the 
quality of investigation. So, <clears throat> with some continuity of mindfulness, some continuity of not being caught up in our thoughts, we begin to discern something, we have insight. And the first primary insight that a human being has when they pay attention with some continuity is it matters. <laughs> Meaning, some ways that we relate are really unskillful. And some ways that we relate to experience is skillful. And we see that directly by paying attention. So for example, I had a stomachache today. <clears throat> so if I was sitting tonight, my stomach was hurting. And let's say I'm just resisting the pain in my belly, you know, and uh, like try not to feel it. And then when I do feel it, sort of judging myself or doing what I did to cause the belly to hurt the way that it hurts. So I'm just reacting, resisting in different ways. And then a moment of mindfulness, another moment of mindfulness, a few moments of mindfulness together. So what is that, what do those mind, moments of mindfulness reveal? Well, it reveals the pain in the belly, and it also reveals the resistance, the reactivity to the pain in the belly. And it reveals a third thing. This is what I mean by insight. It reveals how unskillful the resistance to the pain in the belly is. Right? So those three things can be known with a little bit of continuity. So this is, you know, this kind of insight is available to all of us, where we can observe the pain, the ache, or whatever we're feeling, observe the tendency to react to it with aversion or denial, and observe, this is the important level of, uh, of insight, observe how that resistance is itself suffering. So not only do we have the pain in the belly, but the resistance of the pain in the belly is itself another form of suffering. So there are two forms of suffering happening. And that's an important insight. And this is what investigation does for us. It brings up at least this level of insight that it really matters how we're relating. Some ways of relating to experience is skillful. Some ways of relating to experience is uns are unskillful. <coughs> and with investigation, with that insight that there are skillful and less skillful ways of relating, then we get energized. I think I mentioned maybe last week that human beings are not afraid of work. And I often mention how when I'm flying, you know, I, I like to look down. And sometimes I'm, I'm deeply moved by how much, how hard it has been for, the, for humans to do what they've done to this earth. I mean, you just look, and there's town after town, road after road, house after house. Everything had to be built by human effort. And it's, it's amazing how completely we've affected this planet. So human beings are not afraid of working, applying our effort. But we don't like to work if we don't feel like we're getting anything for it. So the wonderful thing about this level of insight that comes from investigation, that it matters how we're relating, is it's really getting that we can create problems for ourselves if we're not careful. And we can create a lot of ease 
and calm for ourselves if we're skillful. And it's like when we know that there's a way to make good things happen and avoid bad things, we're generally willing, we get energized. We're willing to commit. But we're not going to be too committed to our practice if we don't think, if we're not clear, if we still have doubt whether it's of any value. I mean, we might show up just to check it out. But once you start seeing what value the practice is, the actual doing this, paying attention in this way, what value it has directly on our level of happiness, it's, it becomes relatively easy to keep practicing. And this is the beginning of energy. Energy, in a way, this, this ability to commit or to start over again when the mind's gotten caught up in thought or to let go of what's in the way, <clears throat> the effort or the energy to do these things arises because we feel we're on a path that makes a difference, that we're cultivating a skill that really makes a difference. So we get energized. Just like anything that, you know, we, any kind of regimen that we get on that's relatively wholesome and we have a sense of its wholesomeness, we get energized by it. Just like if we're on a path that uh, doesn't seem to be delivering anything, we get discouraged. You know, so many kids get discouraged with school because they don't understand what value does it have to learn, you know, long division. Why am I doing this? (laughs) It seems like this amazingly obscure thing, (laughs) this strange way that humans have devised to torture children, (laughs) especially these days with calculators being everywhere. And then just a little bit of a preview when we get to rapture or joyful interest, then with this energy, we make a real commitment to the path, to the training. And then with that, we have a deeper insight. See, the first level of insight we get just with some continuity, which we're calling investigation, is just to understand that there are skillful ways that the mind relates to present moment experience and there are unskillful ways. It really matters how the mind's relating. And then we get energized to relate skillfully and to let go of unskillful ways of relating because we know it matters. And then if we get good at that, if we make that commitment, if we take that energy and apply it successfully, systematically, persistently, then we have rapture arise, rapture, that joy in the heart, in the mind, is when we have periods of time when we are in fact successful at abandoning what's unskillful and cultivating what's skillful. So that means we're, we've got some consistency of relating to experience in a way that doesn't agitate the mind. So that non-agitation of the mind is experienced as bliss. <clears throat> Sometimes rapture can be quite ordinary, a feeling of just heightened, like a, you know when your hair rises on the back of your neck and you feel like vividly there. That's 
sort of a mild level of rapture, but it can be quite profound, uh, feeling like you're being swept away in a, a way that's quite unworldly and uh, very pleasant. So there's all different kinds of rapture. And basically, <coughs> it's an unburdened mind or an unburdened heart for a period of time. And when the mind heart is unburdened, it, there's a, it's a very pleasant experience. And in Buddhism, we call that rapture. So that kind of gives us a lay of the land between these, uh, among these first four factors of awakening, mindfulness, investigation, energy, and rapture. And I'll dig in with energy tonight, and Gail will continue talking about energy next week. I wanted to start um, <clears throat> with a poem. Most of you probably have heard of Rumi. It's interesting that the an Islamic 13th century poet is the best-selling poet in the United States. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? Or at least the translations of his poems. And this is, <clears throat> it, it, there's no title, it's just, a, I don't know what they call these little short poems. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. And it reminds me of something the Buddha said very early on. <coughs> after his deep insight under the Bodhi tree. Something like, the gates to the deathless are wide open to those who have faith, to, to those who have confidence to look, I guess we could say. They're wide open. There's nothing in the way to freedom, the freedom in the heart or mind. But you have to look. So the Pali word is virya, and you can probably, you know, uh, Pali and Sanskrit languages, they're in the same Indo-European family as the languages that we're familiar with. So virya, it even sounds like the word virile. <clears throat> and it means, not manly so much, but courageous effort. Or a willingness to do what needs to be done. And like I said earlier, Actually, we're, we're pretty well designed to do what needs to be done if we feel, if we're, if, we're, if we're aware of the payback. Then I think we're willing to do what needs to be done. All you have to do is watch kids play. You know, that they're willing to put amazing effort into things. <coughs> and I think in general, in looking at this factor in our minds, because we don't want to understand it intellectually. We want to see it as a force in our own minds. It's good to look at the difference between how we do work, work, and how we do play. I don't know about everybody, but probably a lot of us have hobbies. Well, we'll work, you know, and some of our hobbies look a lot like work, <laughs> depending on what your hobby is. You know, one person 
you know, <clears throat> does landscaping for a living, you know, and complains about it, and the other person can't wait, you know, <laughs> for Friday so that they can spend Saturday and Sunday landscaping or gardening. And just to look at the difference when we're doing something we love versus doing something we have to do. And just to reflect during the talk tonight about, well, how does mindfulness practice, the formal sitting meditation practice, and the informal living our life in a mindful way practice, how does that become something we love, something we're happy to do, something we're actually grateful to know about and to be able to practice, to, to be able to cultivate? One of the first um, incentives for living in an energized, committed way. And it's interesting, we think, you know, well, I can't be committed. I can't be energized because I don't have any energy. But, you know, it's, that is not definitely not the way it works. The way it works is it's the act of committing and the act of doing that's energizing. The energy comes from the commitment. It's not like we get energized and then we make a commitment. I mean, we might do that. But generally, if you watch your mind, you'll see that if you get up out of bed, if you get up off of the couch, get in your car, all of a sudden, you've got some energy. But if you stayed there on the couch or wherever, you'd be dead to the world. So this is a basic principle, human principle, that we need to understand. When we feel dead of the world, it's probably time to go do something. You know, and so as best we can, we just think of the most skillful thing we can do. Now, isn't that funny when you, when you hear someone say, do the most skillful thing, it's like, oh, but I don't want to do the most skillful thing. But then, then there's something wrong with our use of the word skillful, because skillful by definition means it has payback. Now, one of the tricky things about that payback is <clears throat> some things have a quicker payback than other things. Going to the freezer, getting, out, getting up off of the couch and going to the freezer to get the hog and dust, that has a pretty immediate payback. We get those sweet smooth, creamy sensations for a while. If we eat it too fast, we also get a headache. <laughs> um, and some things, the payback is really gradual, but much more profound than a nice, pleasant sense experience. So <clears throat> it's worthwhile to really reflect on the short-term sense experiences that we often are energized to do, do have enough energy to do. You know, we do have enough energy to get to the fridge or get to the doodabber that turns the TV on and off or, or whatever. But that's about it. But if we, if we bring enough mindfulness to that, we won't be content with the limited pleasure we get because it isn't very satisfying. Even really good TV and really good food it's only temporarily pleasant. And then we just need more. 
you know, and you can't, you can only eat so much, and you have to find a different kind of sense experience. And that only lasts for a while, and then you have to find, and it's a little bit exhausting to be dependent on constantly having to find another interesting or pleasant sense experience to have. So once we begin to understand a spiritual path that delivers a happiness that's not sensual. So the Buddha dis- the, uh, makes a distinction here, and I think this is just a, a generally a good distinction to make between worldly pleasure, worldly happiness, and spiritual happiness. And again, don't think of these things like skillful or spiritual as being abstract. The key is to make to really understand what that means. So think about a happiness that you've experienced that wasn't based on conditions. That's a non-sensual happiness or a spiritual happiness. So sometimes there's a happiness in the mind, a lightness in the mind, a peacefulness in the mind. But it isn't about, it isn't because of this or that. It's just there. As opposed to, you know, we take, um, we drink a glass of wine and we feel that we have that warm feeling for a while, that warm, relaxing feeling for a while. Now, that's a kind of happiness. Or we take a hot bath and we feel that kind of nice release from sitting in the bathtub. That's a kind of happiness that comes with that pleasant experience. Or even get a hug from somebody that we love or that loves us. That's a really nice experience. But it's a dependent experience without the person that we like hugging us. So even though we're getting hugged, part of us, part of the mind already knows that this is really nice and it won't last. And she might not like me later. We understand its fragility, which is true for all sense experiences, pleasant sense experiences. So we get energized when we see this path exist that leads in the direction of a happiness that isn't dependent on anything. begin to see that all of our efforts, the, uh, all of our acti- uh, activities and habits in the direction of seeking sense experience. Now this is all, you know, this is what we all do. But we just start seeing that. And we see that, oh, this is the problem. It's not actually a problem to want a good meal or a good hug or anything like that. The problem is feeling attached or dependent on these things. And because when we're attached or dependent, then we use our whole life energy to get that stuff. And we have nothing left, no energy left 
to go in a different direction. We're, we've got, in a sense, we've made our commitment. We're committed to getting sense experience. And there's really no commitment, no space left to commit to looking in this other direction. So energy in this sense, because this we're, we're talking about a, a model of a spiritual path. Here, energy means an energy <clears throat> in a different direction. So we're, the energy we make is to not believe that attachment, not to act on our neediness, on our fear, because we understand the limitations of it. We understand where it goes. So it's really the energy or effort to go against the grain, go against the stream. So now you now it's easier to understand why the Buddha made such a big deal about effort. Because it's hard enough just being an ordinary human being and going along with the stream. <laughs> right? Doesn't that feel challenging enough? You know, just to kind of keep up with the Joneses, <coughs> keep our head above water. But now we're being asked to hear, still being in the world, but to go in a different direction, to turn our attention in a different direction. So here's one of the discourses the Buddha gives. <coughs> A person without ardor, so you can think of that as energy, commitment, without concern, is incapable of self-awakening, incapable of unbinding, incapable of attaining the unexcelled security from bondage. <clears throat> A person ardent and concerned is capable of self-awakening, capable of unbinding, capable of attaining the unexcelled security from bondage. And so he gives some examples of this. He says, there is a case where a practitioner thinks the arising of unskillful qualities would lead to what is unbeneficial, yet he arouses no ardor, right? <clears throat> so <coughs> we're sitting, you know, at common ground listening to a talk, and it occurs to us, well, there's probably a lot of candy left over at our house. So when I go home, you know, I'm just going to eat it. I'm going to just eat it. And uh, so I'm not saying that's bad, but if we think that's going to make me happy, if we have that thought like, and then I'll be happy, so that we're investing in that imagining. So we're imagining ourselves finishing off the candy bowl. And... Uh, we're imagining, and that's going to make me happy. Well, that's what we call delusion, because it's not going to make us happy. And so if what the Buddha is saying, if we don't expend some energy to correct that delusion, then we're not on the path. That by definition, this is where we spend our energy. This is what we're committed to, is when there's something deluded going on in the mind, we make some effort to clarify the situation. <clears throat> How will I feel when I'm done eating that candy? 
will I be happy? You know, and not in any sort of more, you know, kind of heavy moral way. We're just trying to take care of ourselves, asking a question like that or discerning in this way. And then he goes on, <clears throat> the non-abandoning of unskillful qualities would lead to what is unbeneficial, yet he or she arouses no ardor. The non-arising of skillful qualities would lead to what is unbeneficial, yet he or she arouses no ardor. <clears throat> the ceasing of skillful qualities would lead to what is unbeneficial, yet he or she arouses no ardor. This is what it means to be a person without ardor. Next week, probably Gail will talk about what are called the four exertions. Using effort, making an effort to abandon what's unskillful in the mind. Making an effort to prevent unskillful tendencies from arising that aren't currently there making a real effort to maintain skillful qualities that are present and making an effort to develop skillful qualities that aren't present in the mind. <coughs> so this is sort of pointing in that direction. <coughs> in this effort, this efforting, this commitment to abandon what isn't conducive to happiness and to cultivate what's conducive to happiness, the Buddha is using, or here the way it's translated is the word concern, being concerned. And this is the basis of wisdom. Remember I mentioned when I was talking about investigation, if we have a little bit of continuity of mindfulness, we start having insight that it matters how we're relating in a moment. <clears throat> this is an insight into karma, or this it's this basic moral seeing that it matters how we're relating. So in Buddhism, good and bad is based on whether it leads to suffering or not. It's not like some abstract notion, you know, there's some being out there that decides what's good and bad and then imposes that on us. But it's a very pragmatic definition. What's bad is what leads to suffering for ourselves and others. And what's good is what leads to happiness and freedom for self and others. So, <clears throat> in the sense, effort, in this sense, in a spiritual sense, has to work hand in hand with that insight. This is, I think it's a German proverb, something like, what's the use of running if you don't know where you're going? And this is the idea, like, what's the use of expending energy if we have no wisdom. Actually, we end up with a world a lot like this if there's a lot of energy expended without a lot of wisdom. <clears throat> I'm not saying there's no wisdom in the world, but there's a lot of absence of wisdom. And so we end up with a world with a lot of dramatic things happening but not necessarily a world that leads to the ending of suffering. <clears throat> so 
I'll just end the talk tonight with this, I find, really interesting list. Yet another list that the Buddha put together. He calls it, or usually it's translated as something like the four roads to fulfillment. And I think it relates well to energy or effort. And I'm going to share it just as a way to inspire us all in the next week to see that as long as we're healthy enough, we actually have energy to expend. And uh, we actually find some joy in committing ourselves as opposed to being wishy-washy or on the fence. So this may help you understand how your personality naturally likes to make commitment. And the Buddha came up with four ways. And it really, this understanding this will really help you, <clears throat> help us, not think about Buddhism and meditation practice as being some kind of path of passivity. That it involves a hyper-energetic approach to life. Although the sitting practice involves holding the body still and relaxed, it doesn't mean the quality of discernment is still and relaxed. The mind is very sharp (coughs) and energized and noticing what's arising and whether it's skillful or not. So the process of discernment when we're sitting it's really on fire. And actually, this is a metaphor that's used quite a bit. Like when the mind is dull, it's sort of likened to a smoky fire, you know, that's barely burning, just a lot of soot, a lot of smoke, making a big mess. And when the practice is, has some momentum, it's like a really good bonfire. It's just burning up everything around it. That process of discernment, just burning through, not not uh, caught by anything until there's nothing left, nothing left to see. So that's just the intro to these four roads. So the first road, <coughs> sometimes it's translated as zeal, but I kind of like, from my understanding, I like the words steadfastness or stick-to-itiveness. And the image that Joseph Goldstein uses in his book, It's That Meditation that I'm looking at here, like how when you look or think about a disciplined athlete, you know, and how good some athletes are getting up early and just doing a repetition of whatever it is that they do to train themselves over and over again. I mean... really willing to do the steady work that has results. Now, some of us in this room have that personality tendency to be steady, to be able to apply our our will will in a steady way. And if you're that way, then you might want to cultivate this, combine this personality tendency with this wisdom that I've been talking about, this insight that it matters how we're relating. So then take this capacity you have to be steady and committed and to keep showing up over and over again and to be in it for the long haul to 
in, to put it in this direction, to really have this ongoing discernment of what's skillful and unskillful in the mind, to abandon what's unskillful, to cultivate what's skillful. The second road um, that the Buddha describes is likened more to uh, like warrior energy. And so for this, it would be people who have the personality that they just like challenges. And they just rise to the challenge. And if there aren't any challenges, they're not so apt to kind of get involved. But if it looks like a challenge, then they want to check it out. They want to test themselves. So, <clears throat> we can think of this as a kind of courageousness. Doing something without holding anything back. And Buddha has a great line. I think that, you know, the Buddha was born in the warrior caste in India. So I think he had a little bit of this energy. And some of you know at least according to the stories, that before his deep insight under the Bodhi tree, he spent six years traveling in northern India studying with the teachers, well-known teachers of the day, and learning a lot of very intense ascetic practices. Very intense, actually. <clears throat> and perfected them. I mean, did it as well as anybody. He even says that. There's one uh, passage where he talks about how, you know, whatever anybody else has done in terms of ascetic practices, I've been there, done that. And basically saying, I've, uh, I've tested myself to the nth degree. And then he says, and that isn't the path. So ultimately, he has a different path. But shortly before his deep insight under the Bodhi tree, when he was ready to make his final commitment to sit there until his insight came, he said something like, if the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. So when we think about this in terms of the mind, and some of you who have been meditating for a while, you know how frustrating it can be, you know. You come back to the breath and then you're gone. So you can experiment. If this is your personality, you can experiment with some, some vow, you know, like, I'm not getting up from this meditation until I have some moments of real continuity with my breath. You know, if it's possible for this mind to connect and sustain attention with the ordinary flow of the in and out breath, then it will happen. It's really nice to have that. Or you can make vows for like a sit. I'm going to sit for an hour. I'm going to sit for half an hour. I don't care if a fly lands in me. I'm not going to move for the next 15 minutes. I'm just going to let whatever happen, happen. 
Now that's if you have this tendency in your personality. It can be useful to play with this if it's done with wisdom, done in the right direction. So we're not sitting still for the sake of sitting still. We're sitting still for the sake of learning how to abandon certain tendencies of the mind, like the tendency of being afraid of pain or irritated by pain, but just allowing irritation to be irritation, allowing the pain to be pain. And then the third type is the devotional type. People who have this real strong tendency to surrender, to give themselves to completely, to want to connect. And it can even be on the level of a real devotional energy toward who you imagine the Buddha to be and really wanting to honor him by living up to his teachings. It can be even on that level. Or if you have a particular teacher that you connect with <clears throat> using the devotional energy that way. Or even being devoted to the practice. And just that heart energy of just really loving the whole ritual of sitting every day, of calming the mind down, of discerning. Joseph says, the third road to success is strong love for the Dharma, the love for the truth that keeps our mind continually absorbed in the practice. This love has great purity of consciousness and is extremely ardent. When you first fall in love <clears throat> in the ordinary worldly sense, your mind fills with thoughts of your beloved. Love for the Dharma has a, that level of intensity. It becomes a path to understanding when it fills our mind. We continually reflect on the Dharma, practice it. Nothing else seems equally important. Such love for the Dharma keeps us going. It is our highest love, our highest value. You know, we just want to be close. It makes so much sense. You know, so whatever level that you can apply this kind of love, if that's your tendency, this is a way to express effort, energy. And then the last one is, <clears throat> for those of the people in the room, I probably fall more under this category, who has... Um, a real uh, tendency towards inquiry. And here, it's almost like a love for the truth or a dissatisfaction for anything that doesn't make sense. So, what for this kind of mind, it's like everything has to make sense. Everything has to be in alignment so that we can look at everything and it makes sense. So we want a view or an understanding that can hold it all. And, and basically aren't willing to let it go until we figure it out. So this is the path of inquiry or devotion to inquiry. Such a person takes the deepest satisfaction in probing and investigating the profound mysteries of consciousness.
So it's like there's this new land, except it's our mind, our heart. And uh, <clears throat> totally devoted to understanding it, how it is, how it comes to be. So this week, let's take a, just uh, take some time to reflect on how energy arises and to understand that we actually have to make a commitment. And these four roads may give you an idea about how you're going to make commitment, make effort that will energize your life. Will it be through some kind of devotional activity, loving your practice? Is it through inquiry? Is it through a love of challenge, testing yourself? Or is it through just being very steady and committed willing to put one foot in front of the other, keep showing up. So I'll leave it here so we have a little time to check in with each other if you have any questions or maybe you have some examples from your own practice already about energy or the lack of it, how you've done, how you've worked with that. So anything come to mind? Maria? You know, maybe this is a little, maybe I've missed it, but, you know, when you were quoting, quoting the Buddha on, you know, people without ardor, you know, I think about someone, you know, people in my family who suffer from very, very severe depression. And, I mean, it sort of sounds like he's saying, well, they don't even like, you know, they don't even really rate, you know, because they don't have what it takes to get up in the morning. It's true, they don't have what it takes to get up in the morning. But I wouldn't want to think that um, that would mean that they're not somehow um, sort of worth uh, the, you know, like, like, they somehow have no purpose on the earth, you know, or, you know what I'm saying? I mean, um, so, so what can you do, <clears throat> given that you know people like that? I mean, that's really the question. The well, not a whole heck of a lot. You know? I, don't, I don't think there's much that I can do to make somebody else find that thing in him or herself, but I certainly don't want to think that it can't happen. Yeah, I wouldn't want to think that either. I don't think that, actually. I mean, the more you practice, the more you realize that no matter <clears throat> what state of mind we've found ourselves in, it's much more fragile than we think it is. So we can be in a really exalted state and realize we can be in hell two seconds later. That, that exalted states can fall apart and really heavy states can fall apart too that states of mind exist because of supporting conditions. And when those supporting conditions aren't there, that state of mind changes. But isn't that circumstantial, the supporting conditions? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's circumstantial. Everything's circumstantial. Oh, okay. Because you were talking earlier about um, trying to find a way 
Mm-hmm. Right. This, these would be in the realm of sense experience, you know, where the mind is at. <coughs> yeah. So I, generally people raise questions like that because they, we don't want to deal with what's right in front of us, like just working with what we can work with. And if we do that enough, we might stumble upon something that might actually be useful for the, those other people that are having difficulty in their lives. But we're not going to help them yeah. by sort of judging Buddhism because it doesn't, you know, do this or that. There are people that are in really difficult circumstances, and it's true. It doesn't. It isn't clear to me how things are going to turn around for them. But it's not just depression. I mean, there are a lot of people in poverty. There are a lot of people who are 93 and have never really had a chance in their life to reflect on spiritual, on a spiritual life. So, I mean, there are so many human beings. If anything, though, that should motivate us if we do have some possibility, some health, enough health, enough interest, <clears throat> enough money so that we don't have to work constantly or be stressed about not having enough money. We should really take advantage of that to develop some wisdom. And then maybe we'll be of some value to the people who can't do the practice the way that we can. They don't have that opportunity. Tom? And, and one of the things I just hear in your tone of voice more than anything is <clears throat> a growing respect of the power of our conditioning. And we want to respect it because it is powerful, our conditioning. Like in your case, and pre I appreciate your honesty, just that, you know, how, you know, and it's obviously it's just not you, but how for so many of us, it's like the power of our conditioning to want an intimate partner is so strong <coughs> and we throw all of our wisdom out the door when anything comes within you know our vicinity and 
we should know better. But we don't because our conditioning has a lot of momentum. That particular aspect of our conditioning has a lot of momentum. So we want to respect it and we want to have a lot of compassion because it's just not you who's caught in that that we can see, oh my God, this is basically how it is for everybody. I mean, it may not be women for another person, but it's probably something or some combination of something that it is for that other person. And we can have a lot of compassion. And then out of that compassion, this energy can arise, this commitment to want to see, is there another way than to just be blindsided every time something like this happens? Is there another way? And to keep that as an open question, don't grab on and say, oh yes, there is another way, there's got to be another way, because that, that isn't wise either. But to really want an answer if there is one, and to really check it out, to really check out, is this an answer? Does this address this tendency? And that's really the question. Does mindfulness or the insights that come from paying attention, does it support less suffering with this kind of conditioning? Does it undermine or alleviate the pain of this kind of conditioning? I mean, I think it does, but we all have to decide directly from our experience whether that's true. And then, of course, we get motivated if we see that it does help. And it's useful to know that we're capable of suffering because a lot of people, the problem in their life is they don't realize how susceptible they are to suffering. And so they lack that motivation. So you can really turn it to your advantage <clears throat> by remembering how easy it is to sort of mess up things. Mm-hmm. I think we have to leave it here. There's some candy in a bowl on the table. <laughs> I think with this many people, I, I don't think there's going to be enough. We might, we might have enough, but anyway. You can decide as you're walking out whether you're a bodhisattva or somebody who really deserves a little sense pleasure. But, but out of compassion for me, some of you have to be people who want a little sense pleasure because I don't want that candy around the house.